Hello and welcome to another episode of the Data Revolution podcast. Uh, today, I've got the lovely Linda McIver as my guest, and I'm going to ask her to introduce herself because that's easier for me, I think. Hello, Linda. <laughs> Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Linda McIver. I run the Australian Data Science Education Institute, which is a charity I created to uh, build the data literacy and critical thinking and STEM skills of uh, kids around Australia and ultimately around the world. I love that big mission that you've got. So, so tell me how you got into this. How did you come to start <laughs> um, running this? It was a series of happy accidents, really. Um, I I used to be a computer science academic, and I was I, I I loved that, but I particularly loved the teaching part, and I always felt like the research that I was doing, which was in computer science education, wasn't really having an impact. It wasn't translating to the classroom, and I wanted to I wanted to have more impact. I wanted to have more contact with the students. I wanted to feel kind of more I don't know invested and engaged. So um, I left academia when my second child was due because um it just it wasn't meeting my needs and they were offering packages and I was having a baby and it all kind of fell into place quite nicely um and then I I did a bunch of things for a while uh, that wound up with me being a secondary teacher I try I did uh freelance writing I did uh communications work I did all kinds of things um but I wound up as I say a secondary teacher and that was great in that I felt that like much closer contact with the students than you have in a tertiary setting and I really felt like I was having an impact and making a difference um but I was I was doing two things so one was I was teaching a year 11 subject of my own devising um which I put together with um uh co-teacher by the name of Victor Wojcicki and we we were able to do anything we wanted in that course and we created a subject where we taught what we thought were all the interesting parts of computer science and then we got the kids to solve a real problem um, and we did that by connecting with academics and getting the kids to solve data problems um, so uh, we connected with scientists who had data needs but not quite the computational skills to solve them and got the kids to solve the problems. And, of course, school projects, you, some of them did work, some of them didn't. You, you expect that and we would, you know, warn the scientists up front. But some of them were really powerful. You know, I had kids in that very first class of year 11s uh, doing cancer research. Um, and, wow. and that code that code's still being used. And that was in, whew, when was that, 2011. So, you know, it was it was really some of those projects were amazing and just blew the academics away. And it was it was so satisfying. At the same time, I was teaching someone else's subject in year 10 and they were teaching. We were we were teaching. We were trying to engage the students with code using toys. They were making robots push each other out of circles or follow lines they were um drawing pretty pictures in scratch based interfaces and they hated it and they were so unmotivated and disengaged and it was just awful uh, i have to admit i hated it too <laughs> um eventually i persuaded that uh, the the head of that subject to let me do a data unit where they were learning the same coding skills but they were learning it in the context of real data so we used election data we used data about microbats we used all kinds of different data sets the change in motivation was amazing. They were so into it. And it didn't matter whether it was a topic of particular interest to them. It mattered that it was real. 
Uh, and so I thought, this is great. Now I know how to engage kids with code who didn't want to code before. I'm going to quit <laughs> because I <laughs> wanted everyone to be able to do it, not just the kids in my classes. So I, um, part of the reason I could do that was because I was half-time, so I could use my own time to find the data sets and build the projects and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, teachers don't have that kind of time. They also, for the most part, don't have those skills. So I thought, well, if I can build the projects and find the data sets and annotate the data sets and train the teachers to do this stuff, maybe I can kind of take the hard work out of it and, and make it possible for more teachers to engage kids with these kind of projects. So that's why I started ADSI with the goal of doing that. Really, it was to start, it was to get kids to code, um, but it's become more and more obvious to me that the critical thinking and the data literacy are actually the important parts. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. There's nothing more soul-destroying than teaching someone else's super boring course. It's <laughs> bad for yeah. the students and it's bad for you. I've been mm -hmm. there too. Um, but so when you're looking at the world now with the, especially the high school students, what, what are you seeing um, in terms of their technology capability? Oh, we call these kids digital natives because they've grown up texting and messaging and on Instagram and on TikTok and all the rest of it. But they're not really digitally skilled. They're not really digitally literate. They are consumers of the technology, not, um, you know, and they might create in terms of creating TikTok videos, but they're not creators in terms of creating the technology. They they're don't understand makers. how the technology works. They don't understand the risks of the technology. Yeah, they're... They, they're uh, perhaps digital artists, but not, um, they're just not data literate and they're not really technology literate. Um, and part of the reason for that is the courses that we run at schools are awful. Uh, my, my own kids, um, one in particular was very keen on tech and then was kind of pushed through the sieve of a, a bunch of courses where learning technology was about learning to use PowerPoint and about making Photoshop produce the identical image to the one in the textbook. And he would rather poke his eyes out with a fork than do that stuff. <laughs> and so he, he hates it now. And it's just, you know, I watch that happening. I'm like, oh, no, stop. We could be getting but, to do but, stuff. but, I mean, to be slightly polemical here, I, I am not a power user of electricity. Like, I, I just know mm. how to turn the light switch on. That's yep. not a bad thing. There are engineers out there who, power engineers, who know stuff mm. about power, um, mm. you know, and we, we function quite well. Are we, are we kind of facing a world where, where we don't need so many people who need the making skills? So I agree with you to a point. I don't think everyone needs to code. Uh, I used to, you know, I was a computer science academic. I wanted everyone to learn to code. Um, I couldn't care less whether you can code or not now. What I care about is that we understand enough about technology that we can have a say in the direction that technology is taking us. And at the moment, we are not there. And you can see that in the response to ChatGPT, where I was talking to a bunch of teachers uh, at, a, at an event a while ago, and I... Um, it was months after ChatGPT had hit the headlines and they were all very excited about it, using it every day, and they did not know that ChatGPT did not tell the truth. 
And so I showed them some examples. You know, I went through. It had, I had done. Um, oh, the ever-famous hallucinations. <laughs> yeah, I'd asked ChatGPT for uh, to write my bio eight times and got eight different results with eight different places where I did my PhD and eight different topics where I did my PhD. None of them correct. And they were yeah. like. It did the same for me too. It invented two jobs, one with a a very worthwhile Indigenous institution um, charity that I'd never heard of and the other with the Red Cross. It's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So it's not very good with truth. No, exactly. And what worries me about that is people don't know, you know. So the, the, the real thing that we need to build here is we need to build enough technological literacy and enough data literacy that people can think about these things critically and then people can go well hang on a minute i how do i know this is accurate and and actually challenge these kinds of things because at the moment we are very susceptible to the hype from the people creating these systems Uh, and and when we have things like um a bunch of people who are senior in the ai industry going oh the real risk is um is that they become sentient and kill us all (laughs) which is a very much look over there distraction tactic to avoid us thinking about the very real and present harms of ai which are in the bias and um and misinformation kind of spheres um we all need to know enough that we can have that conversation intelligently and that we can go hang on a minute you are spinning us a marketing line here can we look at the actual reality of the situation because at the moment we're not equipped to do that. Yes, AI is a little way off from being sentient. <laughs> Just a touch. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating area, though, thinking about how we're going to get kids the right skills. So, mm. I mean, you used to think that you had everyone had to code. Mm your thinking evolved now for for the kind of skills that that high school kids in particular need above all they need critical thinking and they need creativity and at the moment our curriculum is um actually uh, forcing that out of them you know kids there's this research that shows that kids when they when they're sort of before kindergarten are incredibly creative. They they are great problem solvers. They think outside the box. They're fabulous. And we progressively through the education system squish them into the box. We cut off into or the naplan the box. Don't fit. Yeah, we we just we force them into this narrow idea of getting the right answer, and you know uh, that solving the problem means getting a hundred percent on the exam. And so to get them instead to do projects where they have to critically evaluate their own work. They have to say what's good about it, but also what's bad about it, Um, who their problems. So if they're solving real problems, then their solutions will help some people, but they will probably harm others. So actually being able to evaluate that and recognise that. I mean, imagine imagine if our governments did that, Kate. That would would be different, wouldn't it? Well, not not all of our governments really don't want to hurt people, though. (laughs) Um, but, but that that's really interesting because it, to me that kind of speaks to using uh, really really simple tools, things like the um, Open Data Institute's Data Ethics Canvas. When mm. you're thinking about doing data projects, which I'm a huge fan of, we'll, and mm. we'll share a link to that in in the show notes. 
But that yeah, kind so of that, idea of, of a one-pager with a bunch of questions about your project I think is really powerful. Yeah, super important to be able to to do those kinds of things and also know that those kinds of things should be done, you know. So um, Laura Summers has um, uh, a wonderful uh, device called uh, the ethics litmus test. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's it's like, you know, a bunch of sort of cards that you you get that, that ask you questions. It's a bit like a card game. And it's like, you know, uh, is this rather, you know, the big question is, is this ethical? But the ethics litmus test has a bunch of smaller questions that just get you thinking around the, uh, around the lines of, well, is this the right thing to do? You know, um, really simple, small things that just get you asking the question. It's not, ethics is, ethics is difficult and it's complicated and it's huge, but we can actually approach it in a, in a fairly simple way and achieve a lot but you have to start there, you know. You have to intend to build ethics in, and and that's that's not built into a lot of our systems to even think about the ethics from the start. Yeah, well, you know, I think that the whole space of ethics, everybody is like, oh, it's so hard, and that's why I like these tools, like the the cards that you just mentioned, or the one pager, where it mm. just asks you a series of simple questions. Yeah, And if you just think about them for a minute, it really can stop you from doing some quite egregious things. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so building that into education where you've got kids solving real problems and thinking about the impact of their solutions and actually measuring the impact of their solutions, that's immensely powerful. And it's it's something that you can't look up the answer for in the back of the textbook. It's something you can't get 100% mm. for. Um, but it it's a... It's a way of um, thinking about the world that actually has the potential to to help these kids become creative, uh, critical thinking, rational problem solvers. Yeah, that's that's an excellent thing to hope for. Um, it really is. It, it's an interesting thing too. I keep saying interesting. You know, it's my most favourite word. I, I did a semantic <laughs> analysis of all my blog posts ever and I it is my most used word. Um, but, but it That's is awesome. truly interesting um, that that how we do education for engineers now is, is a lot of group work and we get mm. them to peer assess each other. So, you know, that mm. critically evaluating not only your own work but other people's work because that's how we work in the workplace anyway. So a lot of lot of what we're doing in the education space now is is teaching them to work as part of teams and small T teams, not large T teams, um, mm. you know, collaboratively working in, in groups because um, that's the way you work in the real world. And increasingly, you know, we're kind of moving away from the old closed book exams, which were just good tests of memory, mm. um, into a world where, you know, if you've got an open book exam you, and you don't know where the answer is in that pile of textbooks you've got on the table in front of you, you can't find yeah. it in an exam anyway. So you have to know yeah. stuff even with an open book exam. exam. Mm -hmm. So that that's so we're starting to shift how we assess uh, people's work and we're trying to make it more aligned to what they'll find in the real world once they graduate and get a job. I think that's really important. Um, we know that exams are terrible ways to assess people anyway. 
Um, they they are uh, fast and easy and relatively robust uh, to to create and to mark. Um, relatively, <laughs> relatively yeah, fast and relatively easy. I've, I've had some. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I'm not a fan myself. I don't miss it. Um, but they're simple. You know, they're they're straightforward and they're what to some extent what we've always done and we know how to do them. Um, but they, you know, when I see a doctor, I don't care whether she's uh, got 100% on her exam. I care whether, first of all, whether she's going to listen to me, <laughs> whether she's mm. going to take me seriously, which is a big problem, especially for uh, non-male patients, um, and and whether she's a good diagnostician. Those things are almost impossible to test in an exam setting. Mm. Yeah. And and increasingly, you know, like we're doing a, a precinct with a joint precinct with the health department and local area health service and another university, and it's a combined um, clinical teaching and treatment facility. And one of the things that we're trying to do with that is is think about how we can use technology to enhance the students learning in that situation. So it's really mm. quite challenging to work out how you can use the technology to help teach as well as treat people in a clinical space. Yeah, it's, you know, that's a, a, an interesting problem and one that we haven't really solved. I went to a, a supercomputing conference, actually the first one I went to, I think, in 2012, and I heard a talk from someone at Intel who had shadowed a cardiologist for a day. And and the cardiologist saw six patients while she was shadowing him, and four of them had the same issue. And the fifth one, to her eyes, looked different, but the cardiologist was in kind of in the pattern for the the, di the diagnosis that he'd just given four times and diagnosed the same thing. And she said, I wonder what would have been different if we had a personalized AI that was just listening in on the on the consult and was able to say, um, did you check this, you know, did you measure this thing or did you ask the patient about this issue? You know, just kind of to throw in the bits that that the doctor might have missed, you know, what other medication is the patient on or, you know, just those kinds of questions because um, uh, though a lot of doctors bristle at the, the I'm just implied criticism. Doctors, <laughs> doctors, especially specialists that I've met, who would not take kindly to any advice from anyone yes. else, not even a no, machine. I, <laughs> and, you know, it's a, it's a social sociological problem rather than a technical one, but it could really... Um, make a big difference to to pick up those things where you know we have we are human uh, even specialists even medical specialists are human on some level um and they 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 you know make mistakes and they fall into thinking traps like we all do um well and one one of the things that's that. happening in in medic medical space right now is um you know, there, there's a lot of people who are working on private, um, closed, um, generative AI and other AI um, applications um, mm. for the health space. And they're very conscious it's all got to be locked down and very secure. And mm. increasingly, it's going to end up being four or five big companies globally, a yep. lot of consolidation. Um, but you get then the benefit of the aggregation of the data 
Mm. and then improve diagnostic capability, which is going to really power a lot of um, advances. And we're already seeing huge advances in uh, medical research, things like vaccines, um, chemical research, you know, new chemicals. Mm. So Mm. AI is going to really reshape the world in quite compelling ways um, that can be both good and bad it's going to be really right and and that's that's why i think it's so important that everyone has enough technological literacy to to kind of um to help steer it you know that that we can go hang on a minute i i'm not sure that this is safe how can how can you uh build safeguards into this system um things like that that at the moment the tech industry is just running away with it and and not subject to much in the way of uh, restraint or um, ethics, really. <laughs> so I think I think a lot more conversation is going to be needed in the ethics space, and probably a lot more conversation in front of students where they can start to discuss the issues and start to understand some of the implications of of bad decisions based on data. Yeah, absolutely. And we used to have those, you know, my, my year 11 class was largely discussion based and we would just talk, talk through the issues and, and think about, you know, the implications. And, and a lot of the time we didn't come to any good conclusions. You know, some of these problems are, are not open to easy solutions, but to even have the conversation would be a step forward over what we have now, which is technology being, um, implemented on aspects of our lives where we have no idea and no control Mm. yeah so what what's what's next for you and your institute well the the big goal is changing the curriculum uh and and changing the way teachers are taught to teach and not just in in data and digital technologies but right across the board that we're actually building these um real authentic problem solving experiences into the way we teach but also that we rethink um the way rethink what we define as the basics um Mm -hmm. that's a keep an eye out for that i'm not ready to say too much more about that yet but it's a work in progress you know i want to really change things so that we're um engaging kids and and that kids know why they're learning stuff and and can see the point and actually want to learn well that sounds fabulous i'm looking forward to hearing more about that so Mm. where can people find you online so the australian data science education institute has a website it's adse.org a-d-s-e-i very easy to type but not so easy to uh, to say <laughs> i did not think that through um we've also we got put it in the show notes so don't you worry it'll be in the show notes if you want to find it so thank you very Perfect. much linda it's been great having you it's been lovely to be here thanks kate and that is it for another episode of the data revolution podcast i'm kate Crothers. thank you so much for listening please don't forget to give the show a nice review and a like on your podcast app of choice See you next time.